Luke 10 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 27, or 17 through 24 this morning. Uh, this time of year, you'll hear people say, Happy Holidays. And what I find interesting about Happy Holidays is as if there are many holidays in the month of December to be happy about. Uh, we celebrate primarily one holiday during Christmas, but it's interesting that we say happy holiday. So what are we, what are we saying that about? Now, what you might find interesting is that there are many holidays during December. Uh, I got on the internet, because everything is true on the internet, as we all know, and I found out that there are other holidays in this month that have some pretty amazing titles. For instance, December 2nd is National Fritter Day. So for those of you who are fritter lovers, there's your day, all right? Uh, December 5th is National Ninja Day. And some of you might say, well, I didn't see that coming. And I'd say, well, that's the point. It's Ninja Day. You're not supposed to see it coming. It's Ninja. Um, December 16th is Chocolate-Covered Anything Day, which if there was a holiday that I wish gained more traction, it would be that, because everything with chocolate is obviously awesome. December 18th is National Wear a Plunger on Your Head Day. No joke. That's a serious thing. I don't know if, if you have that celebration. We'll talk later, and there's some biblical counseling, I'm sure, available to you. Uh, December 23rd is Festivus, which is for all of you Seinfeld fans, it's a real holiday, all right? Um, and so most of you probably didn't know that there were these holidays in December. And so why then do people choose to say happy holidays over Merry Christmas? Now, obviously, it's an attempt for people to be sensitive toward those who do not celebrate Christmas, which I am sensitive toward. Uh, sure, we don't want to force someone to celebrate uh, Christmas if they don't believe in Jesus. Now, however, I do find it interesting about our culture is that many want to celebrate Christmas without, with, but, but by taking out the name of Jesus. Uh, but they'll keep the same themes of Christmas, meaning they'll say phrases like, peace on earth. They'll see, you'll see little um, cutouts of joy or ornaments that say, rejoice. And my question is, if you take Jesus out of that, uh, what exactly are you having peace in? Uh, what are you actually rejoicing in? What exactly do you have joy in? And so without Jesus, the celebration of Christmas actually doesn't make a lot of sense. And so what I want to talk about today, when we use words like rejoice, for instance, how does the word rejoice, how does Jesus change the way that we see rejoice? How does Jesus change the way that we see peace? How does Jesus change the way um, that we see joy. So all of these things, how does Jesus change, should change the way that we see Christmas? And so what I'm hoping that we do this morning, the big idea is how then can we take this idea of adoption that we've been talking about for several weeks, and how do we rejoice in that? How do we rejoice in adoption? And so we're in our second week of this short series, and the big idea is how we belong in God's family. And it's interesting because this is something that Jesus consistently talked to his disciples about. And we see him doing that in Luke 10. Luke 10 is one of my favorite uh, points in scripture where Jesus and his disciples or his followers interact. It's one of, I think, one of the more hilarious stories of Jesus interacting with his followers. Because here in Luke 10, here's what's, here's what's going on. 
you have 72 people who are following Jesus that Jesus sends out on a mission. And he sends, out, sends them out to a mission to all of these remote cities and towns throughout Jerusalem. And they're to go and tell uh, these small towns and cities that the kingdom of God is near. And he's telling them to call, call them to repentance. But when he tells them to go, he says, listen, I don't want you to take your book bag. I don't want you to take food. I don't even want you to wear shoes. I don't want you to take your staff. I want you to go into these places and just trust me. I'll feed you. I'll provide for you. Just go and see what happens. Now, what I love that what happens is these 72 followers of Christ go into these towns and cities and they call for repentance and they have really a revival that takes place among these, among these cities and towns that they go into. And what you see is it picks up in verse 17 of what happens next. Verse 17, the 72 returned with, what's the word? Joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, this is insane, right? Jesus said that he saw Satan fall from the sky. Now, I have no idea what that would look like, but here's what I want you to see. What's sort of happening here is a picture of what the kingdom of God would do. It would cause Satan to have no authority over the believer's life. So th- this, this is what this means for us today in 2016, post Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection. It means that Satan cannot make you do something. Satan cannot possess you. Satan cannot make you sin. In fact, biblically speaking, there's nothing Satan can do apart from God's sovereign allowance. And so these 72 followers are seeing Satan's authority begin to diminish and perhaps for the first time. But keep in mind, these are people that have never had authority like this in their life. They've never seen anything like this and, never, and definitely never participated in anything like this. Jesus' followers, these 72 that went out, they weren't people who were known for their political or religious power. They didn't run in political and religious circles. Jesus didn't go after the followers that were wealthy or popular. Jesus didn't go after the talented or the skilled. Who did Jesus go after? Who were these 72 people? They were like fishermen, tax collectors, harlots, thieves, beggars, and the list goes on. In fact, the way that Jesus would select his followers would be incredibly rare and it would be unheard of for a rabbi to choose his disciples the way that Jesus did. In that culture, a rabbi who chose his disciples would choose the best and the brightest. And for a disciple to follow their rabbi in in Jewish culture in this time period, they would choose the one that would remember the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, They would know a great deal about the law and what the implications of the law meant. They could recite all of these things to you. And so if Jesus goes after fishermen, carpenters, beggars, 
thieves. What does that tell you about Jesus' followers? Here's what it tells you. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed. It doesn't make sense. If this was a fantasy football draft, this would be like picking a team of kickers. It doesn't make sense. And so think about this scene. These are nobodies that Jesus is sending out on this mission, and they are commanding demons in the name of Jesus, and the demons are submitting to Jesus' name. And even Satan himself falls from the sky. So these people live in these, who are from these obscure towns with these obscure Low, lower class jobs have never witnessed anything like this, much less see themselves participating in this and being the forerunner of something like this. I remember um, in 1999, uh, it was a year after I graduated high school, if that tells you my age, um, Hurricane Floyd came to eastern North Carolina and uh, it, it flooded multiple places in eastern North Carolina. One of them was my hometown, uh, Rocky Mount. Greenville got uh, flooded. It was, it was very similar, a little bit worse than the last flood uh, we just had here. And I remember being in Rocky Mount, and I would hear, like, we would get national attention. Like, Rocky Mount gets national attention, right? Um, and I remember it was so bad in the small, obscure town of Tarboro, North Carolina, that um, President Clinton... Um, was helicoptered in, and they landed him in Tarboro to do a press conference. And I remember thinking, wow, President Clinton is in Tarboro, right? Nothing more important in the world right now is more important than Tarboro. And you know, that's probably the first time anyone has ever thought that. And I think about this, this scene These people, these nobodies from these obscure towns outside of Jerusalem, they would have thought the same thing. Wow, Satan falls from the sky. We've seen Satan have dominion over people. We've seen people demon-possessed. We've seen people that are oppressed by demons, multiple legions of demons. And now he sends us out, 72 nobodies with these obscure jobs. And all of a sudden, all of these things happen. Satan falls from the sky. Demons are submitting to the name of Jesus. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so here they are, the scene they, the text actually says they have joy and they have this adrenaline rush when they come back to Jesus to tell them all of these things that happen. But then we'll pick up in verse 20. Jesus says this. You're thinking there's going to be a party. There's going to be a celebration. Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice, now listen to this, listen to what Jesus says, because this is going to tie in to adoption, all of these things that we see. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I love that. Do not rejoice because you participated in this magnificent event that ultimately won't give you the hope that you need. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. This one right here is an awesome thing that just happened. You saw Satan fall from the sky. Demons submitted to the name of Jesus. Don't find your hope in that, though. Don't find your joy there. He goes, what does Jesus tell them to rejoice in? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In its original language, it would say, 
Rejoice that your names are registered in heaven. It's already put there before time began. It was there. Your name was there. God chose you before you even entered this world. That is what you rejoice in. Rejoice that your name is registered in heaven. And what Jesus is going to do now, he takes this concept that he breaks down for his 72 followers, and then he begins in verses 21 all the way through 24, he begins to expand on this idea. Look what he says in verse 21. In that same hour, now Luke is very intentional. When you see a break in in chapters and verses in, in scripture, what often happens is sometimes years can go by, months can go by between verses. Luke is very intentional to show you this is the same line of thought. In that same hour, he, Jesus, what did he do? He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the, fa- who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Luke says, okay, the same hour, Jesus is going with the same line of thinking, and Jesus, in the text says, Jesus rejoiced. What did he rejoice in? He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus rejoice in the Holy Spirit? What does it mean for Jesus to rejoice in the Holy Spirit? Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit because the Spirit revealed to Jesus what the Father's will would be. And I love this because you have... The Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit working together in harmony. You have the Father's will being revealed and starting to be fulfilled. Then you see the, um, the Spirit revealing the Father's will to the Son. And then you have the Son knowing that he would be the one who would accomplish it and carry out the Father's will. Beautiful picture of the Trinity. And there Jesus makes this, and because of that, Jesus makes this audacious statement. No one knows the Father but me. I know the Father. Why Why can Jesus say that? Because the Trinity works together in perfect harmony. And this is just another example out of many that the Spirit does not act on his own authority. Everything the Spirit does is by the will of the Father. Everything the Son does is by the will of the Father. And you even look in in John 16, verse 13, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I say that that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what does he say the Spirit does? The Spirit 
elevates the son. He elevates what the son would accomplish. What would the son accomplish? The father's will. That's how the Trinity works together. So listen, if a church proclaims that they are filled with the Holy Spirit or they're um, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, here's what they'll do. They'll talk a whole lot about Jesus. Why is that? Because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't promote himself. The Spirit promotes the person and work of Jesus. And here, the Holy Spirit is making much of Jesus by revealing the Father's will to the Son, knowing that it would be the Son that would carry out the Father's will. So my question is, what is the Father's will? He he tells it in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little what? Children. Isn't it interesting? This is how Jesus says he talks about little children here. Because what do we just see? We saw 72 people be sent out on a mission. 72 grown adults. No children are mentioned so far. It's not like he said, okay, there's 72 kids. Let's take them off of a bus. Let's tell them to lay aside their Adventure Time book bags. Tell them to hide their Capri Suns and go out and go out in wolves, um, sheep sheep to wolves to slaughter. No, it's not what happened. He's not talking to little children. But he calls all of these people little children. He's talking about the 72. Thank you, Lord, for using these 72 people for your glory. These 72 nobodies. These 72 rejects. These 72 sinners. That's us, by the way. That's us. God comes to us as a father, and we are his children. He is the father to the fatherless. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came so that we would have a father. Jesus came for us little children who need a father. Jesus came to make us ex-orphans. That's what Jesus did for us. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. The whole reason why Jesus came into the world was to pay for your adoption. That was the Father's will. The Father's will is your name's written in heaven, but you need someone to pay for your adoption. So I'm gonna send my one and only son to live a perfect and sinless life, to die in your place because you can't pay it pay for it for yourselves. You need someone who's perfect to pay for it on your behalf. That is what Jesus did. That is what Jesus came for. And that is worth rejoicing in. I'm excited about it. Anyway, so, so as Jesus is rejoicing, he takes a moment to teach his disciples the same idea. And and what he says to his disciples is what I believe is true today. This is when he begins to expand the idea even more. Verse 23. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did 
not hear it. Now, I don't know if you got the gravity of the statement, but it's rich. This statement is dense. If you can focus on it and burn it into your hearts. Like he's saying, everyone has longed to see what you see, but I've chosen to give it to you, 72 people. I've chosen to give it to you, 12 disciples, that you would see this revelation of God's will. That he would open your eyes to the good news of the gospel. They would open your ears to the good news of the gospel. And you would know that when you heard his call, it was a father calling his children. It was a shepherd calling his sheep. He goes, that's what you are called to hear. And many are not called to hear that. But you have this privilege. There's been wealthy, rich people that don't get that privilege. There's prophets that don't get that privilege. Kings that don't get that privilege. You, believer, get that privilege. This is Jesus' 24-carat magic statement, right? Hashtag blessed statement, right? He's saying, this is what you get. Some of the wisest and richest people who have lived on this earth are not as blessed as you are if you're adopted in Christ because your name is registered in heaven. Therefore, if you have all of the world's wealth and not Christ, you would have nothing in your life truly truly to rejoice in. Why? Because we weren't made to rejoice in. In anything else. What did Luke, what did uh, Jesus tell the 72 to, to rejoice in? Was it the great mission that they experienced? No. He said, rejoice that you're adopted. That's what I want you to rejoice in. That's going to give you hope in the end of the day. What did Jesus want his disciples to rejoice in? That they're Jesus' disciples? No. That they're adopted. That's what Jesus wanted his, his disciples to rejoice in. What did Jesus rejoice in? That we are adopted. That's what Jesus rejoiced in. Our adoption is what Jesus desires us to rejoice in, and that is why he came to this earth. Anyone else excited about this? I think it's awesome truth. It's rich. If we can burn it in our hearts and soul, this is what gives you joy, knowing that you were his before you even entered this world, and he sent his son to die in your place. And when you became a believer, you recognized that when Christ died on the cross, it applied directly to you because it was from the Father's plan in the very beginning of time. He's after you. He sought you. He bought you. So let's take a step back and let's just then think about the implications of this. Now, if, if, if a person is really rejoicing in God's adoption in us, what would our lives look like? And there's two realities that I see in this text that our life would look like this. If, if we really rejoice in adoption, two things that I believe from this text that we'll live our lives like this. First, first one, first reality. Joy 
cannot be taken away from you. If you really rejoice in adoption, joy cannot be taken away from you. Once again, I want us to think about the 72 people that just took place in this awesome miracle. They literally come back boasting, Jesus, look what was done. And Jesus corrected them and says, don't boast in these things, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I mean, it's odd. Celebration is, there's nothing wrong with celebration. There's nothing wrong with celebrating a wonderful mission to proclaim God's, the kingdom of God, correct? Nothing wrong with that. At Integrity, we celebrate things all the time. We celebrate moving into a building. We celebrate when small groups grow. We celebrate when generosity grows. We celebrate when people come to Christ. We celebrate when baptism. We show the person that was baptized. We hear their story. So we can celebrate when the person comes up out of the water. We celebrate when we send out a missions team. We celebrate. We want to celebrate. We want a culture that does celebrate. So, but here's the thing. Jesus didn't correct their celebration Jesus was aligning their joy properly. That's the difference. Jesus wasn't correcting their celebration. He was aligning their joy properly. So what does it mean to rejoice? It means that we find joy in this. And Jesus is saying, don't find your joy on a mission trip. It sounds controversial, doesn't it? Don't find your joy in a mission trip. Because sometimes you go on a mission trip and people don't come to Christ. Sometimes you go on a mission trip and nothing happens. So your joy can't be found there. Where's your joy found? That your heaven, that your name is written in heaven. And your name written in heaven, that doesn't change, does it? That is sealed and it's guaranteed. So there's this difference now between joy and happiness. Joy can't be taken away from you. Happiness can be taken away from you. Happiness is temporary. Happiness is fleeting, right? Panthers fans, it's fleeting. Right? Soon-to-be Cowboys fans, when you eventually choke in the playoffs, it's fleeting, all right? It's fleeting. And so you can come up here, and you can knock this podium over, if you're a Cowboys fan, you probably want to right now, right? If you can make it and not Romo over the stage and fall down and uh, hurt yourself. Um, but you, can, you could trip me off this stage, knock the podium over, tear my Bible in half. I'm not going to be happy about that. I'm going to be upset at you, okay? You're going to see a ginger side of me that you don't want to see, all right? And because happiness is fleeting. But, but here's the thing. If my hope is set on my name written in heaven, you can do anything you want. My favorite teams can lose. Tar Heels can lose at another buzzer beater this year. I'm not going to lose my joy, though. I'm going to be mad for like a couple days. But I'm not going to lose my joy. You can't take that away from me. It's guaranteed. My, my foundation is set there. My affections are set there. Everything that I live my life for is set there. Why? Because it's guaranteed. It's unmovable. And so although circumstances change all the time, our joy does not if we have true joy in Christ. Joy cannot be taken away from you. Some weeks are better than others, Correct? 
Some Thanksgivings are really happy. Some Thanksgivings are really sad. Some Christmases are happy. Some Christmases are not happy. Sometimes our health is good. Sometimes our health is bad. Sometimes money is good, but sometimes emergencies happen and they are costly. Sometimes people lose their jobs. Sometimes people lose their friends. Sometimes people lose their relationships. But joy is foundational. It's eternal. It's concrete. And so this morning, listen, if you're coming here and and you're struggling with life because circumstances are not going the way that you had them planned, and you're not happy, you're not happy. Let me just tell you this. I can't guarantee happiness. I can only guarantee joy because that's what scripture guarantees. And joy means that in spite of all circumstances, I'm gonna know that I have a God who's in control of all things and he loves me. And I'm gonna have a, I have a God also who's guaranteed my inheritance, that I'm gonna live forever with him in glory and that life will only get better because I long for another day. And so if you rejoice in adoption, meaning your name is written in heaven, your hope isn't built on what is temporary and often fleeting. Your hope rests in the promise that you have a father who loves you and will never forsake you. And so believer, your adoption has been paid for by Jesus. And so you can rejoice because you are blessed. And you are blessed because Jesus paid for your adoption. And so that's the first reality. Joy cannot be taken away from you. The second reality, if you really live a life that rejoices in Christ, the second reality is this. You live your life knowing that your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is not here. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Saying that to his disciples. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see and hear what you hear and did not hear. If that's his true statement, which I totally believe that it is because it came from the mouth of our Lord This means that we will live our lives with an open hand. That means we will live our lives recognizing that the poorest man and woman in the world have nothing to do with money, but the poorest men and women in the world are those who are without Christ. What would we do because of that? We would live our lives so that others would see and cherish the gospel We would live our lives so that others might be adopted into God's family. So it would take them from being poor to being rich. Because that is what being rich means. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Paul, when he talks about generosity for the Macedonian church, he reminds the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 of the generosity that Jesus has displayed for us. He says, for you know The grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus left his rightful place in heaven to come to earth to be born of a virgin in a manger. And he lived this perfect and sinless life 
on our behalf. He lived a life as a poor man so that we would become rich. And the wealth that we have is not based on earthly gain. It's all eternal, and it's all the inheritance that we have where we get to enjoy him forever. So the implications of that is that you're rich. You and I are rich. Not just because you're an American, but because you've been adopted. And so sometimes we think, we think, okay, if I was the richest person in the world, how would I live my life? Well, I'd give, I'd solve this problem. I'd solve this problem. I would give to these people. I would build an orphanage. I would give more to schools. I would, you know, and you would just, you would say, okay, I would send out all these missionaries and you would say all these things. But let me just tell you, you're already one of the richest people in the world because you're a believer in Christ. And this is why I believe that most, that believers should be most generous because they believe that they are the richest. And that's what adoption should do to us. We, be, we believe, okay, I am one of God's children. I belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I have the w- most wonderful truth that God says to his disciples that most prophets and wealthy people have never got to see, but we've given me eyes to see, ears to hear. And this is why I believe so many Christians, they physically adopt They physically adopt because they become open-handed with their lives and they want to do for others what Jesus has done for them. And that's why I believe physical adoption is one of the most perfect pictures of the gospel that a believer can display. I'm not saying every single one of you needs to adopt. It's not for everyone, but I do believe that every believer should prayerfully consider it. Why? Because it just is another example in another way. That we live our lives sacrificially with the open hands. That we live our lives saying, okay, I'm not going to cling to this treasure here on earth that I want. I'm going to lay it aside so that others will become rich in Christ. And that's what it means to live sacrificially. And so if you are a believer, you should want to be generous because you recognize that your joy isn't here. Your citizenship isn't here It's laid up and stored up in heaven because your name is registered there. And so I think this is such a rich truth for us at this time of year. It's a rich truth for us because oftentimes this is the time of year. And sadly, it it should be the opposite. But this is the time of year where our affections are just stirred toward consumerism. We think, okay, if we just have that one thing that we've longed for, I'll have joy. But what happens if you, even if you get the one thing? You forget about it. It breaks. It doesn't last. It doesn't deliver. You want something better. You want something greater. It gets lost. Oftentimes we rejoice if all the family gets together. But what happens if they do? It's short-lived. It's gone in a moment. It's fleeting. Next thing you know, you're taking the Christmas tree down. It feels like I just put it up yesterday, but you're already taking it down. It's fleeting. Oftentimes we rejoice in just no drama. On a drama-free Christmas. Guess what? Even if you have it, it's not temporary. I mean, it's temporary. Drama's gonna happen again. You're in a fallen world of sin. You can't put your hope here. You can't put your joy here. Your joy needs to be found in Christ and Christ alone. And if your joy is found in Christ alone, those two things will be true about you. No one can take your joy away from you. And your citizenship is here. 
and you'll live your lives that way. And so this morning, instead of giving you a bunch of points of ways you can do that, all I want to do is for us to remember the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in this passage. What does Jesus say? He says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Integrity Church, are we blessed? Do we have something worth rejoicing in? What is it? Our adoption. Our names are written in heaven. We have much to be grateful for. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your sacrificial death on the cross for us. Thank you, God, for your will that the Son would come and call and bring together your children and to pay for our adoption so that we would have a father. And Lord, because of that, we're more blessed than anyone else. And so Lord, help that to give us two things. Help, us, help it to humble us and help it to give us joy. By humbling us, Lord, help it to give us compassion for others who do not know you. And Lord, will we then live our lives not as spoiled brats, but as people who live sacrificially so that others would see the good news of the gospel. And Lord, would, we help, would you help us to see, Lord, that no one can take our joy away from us. No circumstances can take our joy away from us. And so, Lord, for those in this room who maybe come in here, there's things in their lives that do not make them happy. Lord, would you, by your spirit, help them to see that through adoption, through you adopting us and calling us your own, that we can have joy because it's guaranteed that we will receive an inheritance. And that inheritance isn't the worldly things that we often set our minds on. It's just enjoying you forever, to being in your presence forever. And Lord, that's a wonderful thing as we think about a father embracing his children forever. Let us, let that be our aim. Let that be our heart's desire. In Jesus' name, amen.